and it was just a boy thing at that time. So we would chant, no girls allowed. We'd pop a big old bowl of popcorn, and as we went down to the basement, we'd keep chanting, you know, no girls allowed, and we'd have a guys-only movie night down in the basement. It was really just a way to give mom a break and to kind of bond with each other, but it's been a blast, and of course, it's changed because now I have a daughter, and uh, so of course, we had to include her, and so we we don't do just the guys thing anymore, but anyways, uh, it's been so fun to introduce my kids to the same some of the same movies that I grew up with. I grew up, uh, my family, we did a family night every Friday too, and so we watched a lot of movies together. That was one of the ways that we bonded. And so I grew up with uh, Disney movies. I don't know how many of you grew up watching Disney movies, but we'd watch some of the older ones like uh, you know, Peter Pan and, and Jungle Book, and then some of the newer ones, you know, Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. And one of my favorites growing up, and still to this day, is the movie Aladdin. I'm, I'm excited about, I think, next spring, like the, the actual, the real-life-looking one comes out, and I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm like a kid again. And uh, anyways, we, we love that movie growing up. And uh, one of the things that always caused me to think about that movie was, what would I do? You know, if you've never seen the movie Aladdin, maybe you don't know this, but one of the the main premises of the movie is that that Aladdin is given three wishes by the genie. And that's really kind of the, the story woven throughout the whole movie, is that Aladdin has to choose how to use his three wishes. And his wishes kind of change over time and it becomes very complicated, very difficult for him to actually make a decision. And so I remember thinking as a kid, you know, what would I do? If I were given three wishes, what would I wish for? That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? But imagine just being given one wish. If somebody had the ability and they said to you, I will give you one thing, anything you want, just one thing, what would it be for you? If you could choose one thing, somebody could give you anything, and you had to choose just one thing. To receive from them, what would it be? That question for me doesn't really solve problems. It creates a crisis, doesn't it? I mean, when you start thinking about that, man, if I really had to do that, it's kind of like this swirling thought in my mind. Like, it's really hard to, like, what would I even, what would I say? I have no idea. But my guess is if we actually wrote down what we would wish for, my guess is that most of our answers would involve one of two things, quantity or quality. We would probably want more of something, more money, more time on earth, more time with our family, whatever. Or we would want something that improves our quality of life, good health, um, safe travel, uh, or safe family, you know, travel the world, things like that, world peace, you know, things like that, something that would improve quality of life. But at the end of the day, my guess is that whatever we wrote down, our wishes would probably relate to the vision that we have for our, our own lives what we envision our lives ought to be. Well, today we are talking about a man who actually had to make that choice. He's a man named Solomon. And what we learn about the the life of Solomon is this, that life is not about quantity. It's not about the quantity of things that we have. It's not even about quality. It's about asking God to qualify us to do the things that he asks us to do. You see, when we set our kingdom aside and we join him in building in a his kingdom, we join in with him building an, an eternal kingdom. You know, our kingdoms will not last our lives in this world. But when we join together with God in building his kingdom, we're investing in something that lasts for all of time, all of eternity. So let's start right in here with the story of Solomon. First Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 
1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I'll be reading from the ESV, and it'll be up on the screen today if you don't have your Bible with you. And it says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, they shall not lack, you shall not lack a man on the throne in Israel. So Solomon's story really kind of ends as David's story is coming to a close. Of course, Solomon by this time is 20 years old, but the Bible really doesn't talk much about Solomon until David uh, begins to, to die. He's close to death here. And uh, so these are the words that we read today are some of the last words of a dying father to a son. And death has kind of a way of bringing things into perspective, doesn't it? We begin to think about the things that are most important to us. We look back and we reminisce and, and we get sentimental and sometimes we even get sad. Even as we're, we're thinking about happy things that happen, we're sad because we realize that pretty soon those things aren't going to happen anymore. And that makes us sad. But David is not the typical person. He's a visionary, and he's looking forward at the things that are to come. And so he, he's just blunt with it. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. David was a special guy. He did some incredible things. He had a special relationship with God. But just like everybody else, whoever has been and everyone who will be with the exception of like a couple, he does what everybody else does. He dies. And before he dies, he has some instructions for his son. And his instructions to his son are this. Simply be a man. He says to David, I want you to be a man. Now, I believe, and I feel like this is a little bit under attack, and I don't know, this might even step on some of your toes, and I, I don't mean for that to happen. But to me, it's clear as day that God has made men and women unique and different from one another. Now, I know that thought is kind of under attack, and I know there's certainly exceptions. But what I'm saying is I feel like in nature God has made men and women with different strengths. And he's made us unique for a reason. And as we think about what it means to be a man, I mean, what makes a man a man? And we might have some different ideas coming to our minds. Maybe we think of provision or we think of strength or we think of a certain kind of intelligence or, or maybe we think about a man's unique ability to put himself into dangerous situations that women are smart enough to avoid. You know, I mean, could, there's a lot of things that in your mind might make a man a man in a good way or maybe in a not so good way way. But David doesn't leave it up to us, and he doesn't leave it to interpretation what we think being a man is. He says, be a man, but he doesn't leave it there. He says, and this is how a man should act. And he goes on to, to say exactly what it includes. He says, do what God tells you to do. That's what makes a man a man. Follow his orders. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies. Now, that might be a little bit different from our definition of what makes a man a man, isn't it? Sometimes we think of those outside things, you know, those things that we might think of looks, appearances, certain specific acts. But here he says, no, it's, again, what's on the inside, somebody who obeys God, somebody who follows God. This goes back to the whole Saul and David thing, remember? The man looks to the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. 
So David, he does look back for a second, but not to reminisce. He says, I want to tell you about a promise that God made to me. God made a promise to David through the prophet Nathan, and this is the promise. So we read at the very end of that passage that we just read. It says, if your sons, this is Nathan speaking for God to David. If your sons pay close attention to their ways, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne in Israel. So God's message to David is this, don't sell out for a temporary kingdom. Buy into an eternal one. And, and David gives the same advice to his son. He says, buy into the eternal kingdom of God. Don't get distracted with the things of this world. That's not an easy thing to do, is it? We are surrounded by distractions, things, people, things that pull us away from God all the time. Sometimes it's even seemingly good things that can pull us away from God. So this isn't an easy thing to do. But consider that Solomon, he had quite the kingdom, didn't he? He inherited an incredible kingdom. So for him not to get distracted by that earthly kingdom, that's hard. Uh, You and I, we don't know. I don't think what that's like. I mean, David had given his son peace on all sides. And David knew the art of war. But Solomon, because there were no wars to fight, because he was at peace, because of what his father had done, Solomon, he knew the art of making a deal. He was a deal maker. He made deals with everyone. And we learn a little bit about that. But before we jump into that, I want to, I want to talk to you about this term. I don't know if you know this term, um, infanticide. Does that ring a bell? We see it in the, the animal kingdom, especially like you, you think of uh, lions, for example. And what a male lion will sometimes do is he will kill uh, infant male, like male cubs, that he thinks might be a threat later on. And we see it in certain species of monkeys and other animals. But sadly enough, we um, also see it in people sometimes. And we think about times uh, in medieval times when uh, monarchies were very common. Uh, Sometimes a new king, what he would do is he would kill anyone who was a threat to his kingdom. And that was pretty common even for this time when Solomon becomes king. We might expect that from Solomon to, to kill any potential heirs, uh, but he doesn't do that. Actually, he had a threat to his throne. His name was um, Adonijah. I keep looking at the, I'm a Bears fan, and the Bears used to have a defensive, I know, I can't help it. <laughs> they used to have a lineman named Israel Adonijah, and so this whole week I keep seeing Adonijah, and I keep wanting to say Adonijah for some reason. So anyways... If I say Adonijah, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Adonijah. Can't get the bears thing out of my head, sorry. So anyways, Adonijah was one of David's older sons. And he was really a more likely candidate to be the king in Israel. But that wasn't what God had chosen. God had ordained that Solomon was going to be king. But even though it was God-ordained, it wasn't easy. Adonijah, he saw that David was failing in health, and he said, you know what? While my father's old and he's probably distracted with his own health, I'm going to just announce that I'm king. And he did, and he threw this party, and David hears about it. And so he anoints Solomon to be king. And right in the middle of Adonijah's party, there's these trumpets that blow, and this announcement is made that, no, Adonijah Adonijah is not king. I can't wait till we move past Adonijah so I can stop thinking about that. Um, That guy, the other son, he is not king, but instead Solomon was king. And so anyways, as Adonijah hears the trumpets blow, he gets scared because he knows he has put himself directly in the path of the new king of Israel. And he knows 
it's, there's a pretty good chance that he's going to lose his life because he's already made himself an enemy of the new king. And I think really the world would kind of expect that Solomon would probably do away with Adonijah because of what he had done. He had made himself king instead of Solomon. But we see Solomon has character, and we see that first glimpse of his character here. It says, Adonijah feared Solomon, but Solomon makes a deal with him. He says, I tell you what, if you show yourself a worthy man, if you show that you are not a wicked man, you can live. Gave him a chance. Now, unfortunately for Adonijah, he wasn't a man of character, and he wasn't worthy, and he was wicked, and he tried to take the throne again, and so he was killed, but not before Solomon gave him a chance. There's another story we read about uh, Shimei. He was a man who cursed David. And he didn't just do it once, but he kept cursing David. He was really an enemy to the throne of David. And uh, he was still alive when Solomon took the throne. And so Solomon, he could have killed him, but again, he made a treaty with him. And he said, I tell you what, if you stay in Jerusalem, you can live. And he does that for a while. And again, he breaks the treaty. He leaves Jerusalem and he's killed. But what I'm saying is Solomon, even though he has all this authority and power, he still sought peace with people who had made war with him. So we continue on with the, the story of Solomon in chapter 3, verses 3 through 14. We've got a lot of passages we're reading today. Uh, it's easier reading. It's a fascinating story, so hopefully you can follow along pretty easy. Uh, 1 Kings 3, 3 through 14. And this is what it says. And pay attention to this. It tells us a lot about Solomon. It says, Solomon loved the Lord. That was a, a key point in the story of Solomon. He was walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, that almost makes that sound like a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's what they were supposed to be doing. They were going to the high places because they didn't have a temple and they were sacrificing. But Solomon was getting ready to build the temple. So going on, verse 4, And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask Ask what I shall give to you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. Uh, Solomon is about 20 years old when he became king. I do not know how to go, in, go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked me, for, asked me yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that no one like you has, has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes, my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. One of the saddest parts in all the Bible is that occasionally there's a good king in Israel or Judah's history. And I don't know if you know this yet. We'll get to this next week. But the Israelites become a kingdom, and we, we refer to that as Israel. After Solomon, the kingdom's divided into the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Okay? And so we read kind of these separate histories at times where there's a king in Judah and a, and a, excuse me, king in Judah and a king in Israel. And um, 
So we read kind of this tragic history that even in Israel and both Judah, time after time, the kings of Israel and Judah are evil. It says, you know, so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord over and over. But occasionally you get somebody who does what's right, who does what's good, who follows God. But then right after that, you read that his son does the exact opposite does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's a heartbreaking thing that we see in biblical history, people rebelling against their parents' faith. Fortunately, that did not happen with Solomon. It says that Solomon walked in his father's footsteps, that he loved God, that he was a worshiper. But we also read that Solomon felt unqualified. You ever feel unqualified for a task ahead? It's a terrible feeling. Yeah, as a parent, I feel a lot of times like I'm unqualified for that task. Uh, maybe you've been in a job and you feel, you know, it's a new job and you feel just completely overwhelmed um, and unqualified for the task ahead. Maybe it's something as simple as a friend comes to you and has this huge problem and, and you want to help them and they ask for your advice and you just feel completely unqualified to give them advice. But it's a horrible feeling to feel like you are not up to a task that's been given to you. And as a society, we, we say things like, well, just fake it until you make it, or act like you've been there. You know, just, you know, the only thing worse than being unqualified or underqualified is to admit it. So just fake it. But Solomon doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't put up a front. He doesn't try to be, pretend to be something he's not. You see, in the economy of God, when you begin to think that you're qualified, you're in trouble. So Solomon, by saying, I am not qualified for the task of being king of this great people of yours, He's admitting that he doesn't have the strength on his own to do what God has called him to do. Solomon knew the source of his father's success, and he says it here. It was God's kindness, and it was David's commitment to following him. And he knew the success of his kingdom depended on his willingness to follow the Lord. And he says here, I'm just a child. I cannot do this on my own, this, this great people. I need your help. So Solomon, he could have asked for anything. He had one wish. He could ask for anything. And what did he ask? He didn't ask for honor. He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask that his enemies be wiped out. He asked for wisdom to do what God had called him to do. God, it says, was pleased with his answer. And God gave him what he asked for. He increased in wisdom. His judgments were firm and fair. And we get an example of his judgments right away, don't we? And maybe if you grew up in, in church and in Sunday school, you might remember this story from when you were a kid. But one of his first judgments that we read about, uh, two uh, mothers, they were both prostitutes, and they both had a baby. One was alive and one had died. And so the woman came before Solomon and said, this woman has taken my baby. Her baby died in the night, and she took her baby and put it in my arms, and she took my baby who is now alive. And the woman said, no, that woman's crazy. This is my baby. And so they were feuding over it. Solomon says, okay, bring me a sword. They bring him a sword, and he says, I tell you what, we'll divide the baby in half. You get half, and you get half. And of course, the real mother says, no, don't do that. The other one says, yeah, that's fine. Sounds good to me. Horrible person, apparently. But anyways, the woman, the real mother said, no, 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 don't do that. And Solomon right away knows that no real mother could bear to see that. And he says, give that baby to that child. So, I mean, it seems really like crude and harsh to us, but we realize that Solomon had wisdom. And it said that people marveled at his, at his decision-making and his judgment. So he... Solomon, he had a thirst for knowledge. He was a judge. He was a poet. We read his words in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. We blush at his words in, in Song of Solomon. He was a poet. He was a zoologist. He was a botanist. First Kings 4 tells us he knew all about plants and, and all about animals. I talked to Eli this week, my son. He uh, is one of those kids. He like, 
He's like a sponge, and he soaks things up, and he loves animals. And so he rattles off facts about animals like you would not believe. I mean, it's, it's oh, just to give you a little example, one time uh, Liz and the kids were on a uh, nature hayride. And uh, Eli pointed up to a tree, and he said, Mom, do you see that hole? It's oblong shape, and that's, from, that's how you know it's a paleated woodpecker, not a regular woodpecker. And she's like, what are you talking about? And like three minutes later, the tour guy's like, oh, stop the!" And he said the same exact thing. He's like, you see this hole? This is from a paleolithic woodpecker. And Eli gets up, and he's like, booyah, I told you. I mean, like, he's, he's all about, another time he was on the monkey bars, and he was swinging, you know, arm over arm. And he said, hey, look, I'm brachiating. And I'm like, what is brachiating? He's like, that's what a monkey does. That's what it's called. So anyways, he's like, knows a lot of things about animals that I, I don't know. I've learned a lot about animals. But anyways, I said, you ought to study Solomon. You would really like Solomon because he, he knew a lot of facts. It says that he was wiser than anyone. People came from all over to hear his wisdom. And I, I know for me, I've been reading uh, personally, just in my personal time, I just happen to be reading through Proverbs. And uh, I typically listen to my Bible more than I sit down and read it. Just I find that I retain more if I just if I listen to it for some reason. And so I've been listening a lot to it. And I've had to keep rewinding because in Proverbs, it's like one brilliant thought after one brilliant thought. And it takes some time to like process what he's saying. I mean, he just says it in one quick sentence and you're like, that's, that's incredible advice. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's just the whole, the whole pro- book of Proverbs is like that. I mean, he was just, he was wiser than anybody that has been or ever will be. That's what God says here. So he increased in wisdom. We also see that he increased in worship. One of Solomon's greatest accomplishments was that he built a temple. It says that it took 180,000 workers seven years to complete it. Now, they weren't, there's no way they could have been working at the same time because, honestly, the temple was not that big of a building. I can't remember the exact dimensions, but it talks about how many cubits, and a cubit is 18 inches. And so I want to say it was like 100 feet. It wasn't a very big place. But it took seven years to complete, not because it was huge, but because it was so ornate. He brought in special wood, cedar. And uh, they, this uh, man from uh, Tyre, I think it was, would uh, build rafts of cedar, and he would float it down the river, and they would use that for the temple. Uh, he hired um, craftsmen to complete all these fancy embellishments. And one thing that I noticed about the temple that I'd never noticed before, everything was prefabbed. You didn't hear the sound of a hammer or a chisel or a saw or anything like that on the job site. Everything was built off-site and then brought in to fit perfectly where it was supposed to be. That's how they built the temple. So it's this great, incredible building. And when they placed the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the temple, that's where the like, Ten Commandments, it was symbolic of the presence of the Lord. When they placed that in the temple, it said that the presence of the Lord came into the temple in the form of a cloud. And Solomon prays this prayer, and it's this incredible prayer. I wish I had time to read it, but I, know, I don't want to put you to sleep if you're still awake. I got to joke about that every week. I can stop doing that. Anyways, um, he says, he basically said, God, we know that your presence cannot be contained in the heavens. It certainly cannot be contained on the earth, and it certainly cannot be contained in this little shack that we've built for you. But let this be a symbol that we know that you're here. And he goes on and he talks about different things. He says, uh, when a man sins against his neighbor, uh, when your people are defeated in battle, when there's drought or famine, no matter what happens, let us come to this place and let your eyes be open to us. Let your ears be open to us. Hear us, Lord. And listen to us. And it says, as he finished praying, fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifices. So everybody that was there, all the people of God that were there, saw this happen. 
There was no denying that God, the same God who had parted the Red Sea and brought them out of Egypt, the same God who had led them through the desert and fed them and gave them victory in battle, that that God was with them. So Solomon increased in wisdom, he increased in worship, and then he also increased in wealth. He was wealthy. I mean, beyond imagination, it says that he built fleets of ships, he made chariots of gold, shields of gold, he had an ivory throne, he accumulated so much silver, it says that silver was like stone in Solomon's day. It wasn't worth all that much because they had so much of it. It just wasn't that big of a deal. All the world was captivated by the wealth that Solomon had. Even the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon and she was blown away by what she saw. But what I love about Solomon is that he did not seek wealth and he didn't take credit for it. He acknowledged God's the one who gave this to me and he didn't forget that. And what I really like about that is listen to what the queen says when she comes to visit. 1 Kings 10, 6 through 10, this is where we find her words. She said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes and I had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom, your prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happier your men, happier your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, listen to this part, who is delighted in you and has set, your, set you on the throne in Israel. Did you catch that? All the credit goes to God. I mean, he, had, he didn't say, yeah, look at everything I've done. He apparently had given credit to God because Queen of Sheba was giving credit to the same God. He says, because the Lord loves Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. See, Solomon didn't forget that it was God that had built his kingdom. And I think that's a testimony to how we ought to live our lives. Now, we don't have a kingdom, maybe. We don't have a castle like Solomon, but we have our lives. And that's kind of like our kingdom, so to speak. And so rather than seeking money or things, we ought to be seeking after God like Solomon was. Solomon now, he had great wealth. Now, that doesn't mean that if we follow God that God's going to make us the richest people that have ever lived. That happened for him, but that may not happen for us. The point is that we will find fulfillment and satisfaction in, in things that things won't provide, I guess you would say, in something that things won't provide. But Solomon, he talks about this in Ecclesiastes. He says, you know, I've experienced everything that life has to offer. And you read the same phrase over and over in Ecclesiastes. It's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He had tasted everything that life had to offer. He says, it's all meaningless apart from God. Now, I wish Solomon's story ended there, but sadly it didn't. See, Solomon, from the very beginning, there's this underlying story line that, that follows him throughout his life. Solomon, he had girl troubles. And I don't mean he didn't have trouble finding a girlfriend or, or uh, didn't get dumped before some big dance or anything like that. I mean that Solomon had uh, too many girls, and it became a problem, if that makes sense. He had hundreds of wives and concubines. And I tell you what, that's a difficult thing for us to process in our culture today, right? Like, that's, that's, a, that's a big ooh factor for us. And we very easily lose respect for Solomon. But this is something that was common in his day, and God doesn't really speak directly to the fact that he had wives. But the problem is that 
Solomon had disobeyed God. God said, I don't want you to intermarry with these people. And time and time again, Solomon intermarried with people that God forbid them to intermarry with. And the whole point was that God did not want them to be led astray by their gods. Solomon got a little too sure of himself, and eventually he got led astray. So Solomon becomes forever the man who did not wholly commit himself to the Lord. David did. David was wholly 100% committed to the Lord. He screwed up big time, more than once. But he was still wholly committed to the Lord. Solomon was only partially committed to the Lord. Throughout Solomon's reign, God reminded him of the promise that he had made to him. He says, if you would just obey me and follow me, one of your heirs will always sit on the throne. And yet, what did Solomon do? He traded in an earthly pleasure for an eternal kingdom. He did not obey God. What a tragedy. To start so well, to have all this wisdom and all this wealth and all this stuff, to experience everything that God had to offer in this life and then to throw it away. Now, Solomon didn't uh, turn completely away from God, but there was just this one area of life that he was unwilling to surrender, and that got me thinking about us today. It's so many times like Solomon, and honestly, it's kind of hard to relate to Solomon, isn't it? I don't think anybody feels like they've got more money than they know what to do with in this room. Uh, if you do, let me know. But <laughs> let me talk to you about tithing. I'm just kidding. Um, not really. Um, but <laughs> I don't think any of us really relate real well uh, to Solomon, you know, and his wealth. I mean, this is a hard thing for us to grasp, but I think we can all relate to not being completely 100% surrendered to God. And I think what happened with Solomon is there's just this one area of his life that he refused to give to God. And that one area that he refused to give to God is like a slow poison for him. And eventually it took over. And I think for us, sometimes it's easy for us to think as long as we surrender at least 51% of our lives to God that we're good. As long as we give him the majority of us that we're okay. But if we are not 100% sold out to him, I mean, that's not... That's not how surrender works. Surrender is everything. Either you follow him with your whole heart or you don't. And it's so easy for us to hold back certain things in our lives. It could be an area of our life like relationships. This is one thing I want to talk to you young people just real quick, like teenagers, college-age students. This is one thing, and I'm telling you from experience because I was here, that it's really hard sometimes to give that area of relationships to God. It's like we want to follow God and we want to know about God and we want to read our Bible and we want to go to church and we want to call ourselves Christians. But sometimes it's very hard for us to give our relationships to God. The Bible talks about not being unequally yoked. In other words, not being in a relationship with people who don't have the same values and same beliefs that we do. And yet time and time again, I see young people especially fall into that. I fell into that was in a relationship for a long time that I had no business being in. And thankfully, God in his grace and his mercy rescued me from that. But that was all him. If it were up to me, I would have continued down that path. And I certainly would not be here. But man, I, I want to I challenge you young people. If you're in a relationship that you know is not God-honoring, that you know is not consistent with what you believe in, then why are you in it? But sometimes there's a certain areas of our lives that we refuse to give to God. Relationships, it could be finances. Sometimes it's a habit or an addiction. You know, it could be an addiction to a substance. Or uh, it could be something as simple, and it might even, we might not even think of it as a big deal. It could be just how we talk about other people. It could be anything like that. But it's just something in our life that we refuse to give to God. And at the time, it might not seem like a big deal, but over time, it slowly poisons us. 
just like in the life of Solomon. So what we see in the life of Solomon is this. The life is not about quantity. It's not about the quantity of things. It's not even about quality. It's really about asking God to qualify us for what he wants to do. You see, when we set our kingdom aside and we join with him in building his kingdom, we build an eternal kingdom. But when we refuse to surrender our lives, when we refuse to give God all of who we are, it shows that we've kind of lost sight of why we're really here. And I think that's so common for us, isn't it? To get wrapped up into thinking that our time on earth is really just limited to our time on earth, and that's it. We forget that the whole reason we're here has this eternal plan, this eternal perspective, that there are opportunities that God has in mind for you that you might not even know about, but he has opportunities in mind for you, and he's expecting you to make the most of those opportunities. And if you don't have your eyes open to God's eternal plan for your life and eternal purposes, you're going to miss out on those opportunities. God may have it in mind for this one person in your life, for you to be the person that brings them to the Lord. But if we, if we don't have that eternal perspective, if we're only focused on our lives here on earth, we miss those opportunities. And it might not be as direct as that. It might be something else. But my point is this, that sometimes we lose sight of why we're here on earth. You ever think about that? Why you're here? What this life is really about? Why God has placed you on this earth? Do you think he's just placed you here to uh, grow up, get old, get aches and pains, uh, make a pile of money, spend a pile of money, and then die? Is that it? I think God has placed us here on this earth for a reason. And I think it's important that we always have that in mind. And man, Solomon, he had that for a while, and he lost it. He got distracted with the things of the world. But God has placed you here for a reason. He's placed you here to build his eternal kingdom. And what's really cool is that when we build a kingdom by surrendering to him, people take notice. Did you notice that in the story of Solomon? Solomon built a kingdom the way that he should have. He was following after God, and everybody around him took notice, and they saw it. The Queen of Sheba herself wanted to come see his kingdom. And I think when we build a kingdom the way God tells us to here on earth, that people take notice and they say, and it might not be a big old castle, a big old house or nice. That's not the kind of kingdom I'm talking about, okay? I'm saying if we do the things that God calls us to do, I think people are going to take notice of our lives and they're going to say, I wonder what's different about that person. I want to know what that person has that I don't. That gives us an opportunity to tell them, about the one true God, just like the Queen of Sheba gave glory to God. So my hope and my prayer for us is that we have an eternal perspective of this life, that we consider why God has placed us on this earth, that it's not about quantity, it's not even about quality of life, it's about being qualified for what God has called us to do. So the question is, what has God called you to do on this earth? And don't get bogged down if you don't have a real specific answer to that. I'm not saying everybody's called to be a preacher, teacher, you know, anything like that. I'm just saying God has placed you where you're at for a purpose. So if you don't know your specific purpose in life, your purpose in life is simply this, to follow him, to be connected to him, to ask him, God, what is it that you desire for my life? That's his will for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day you've given us today. We're thankful for the chance that we have to gather together in this building where reminded, God, that you're a God of beauty and power, especially uh, this time of year, Lord, the changing of seasons, and we see uh, how you have put things in perfect order. Lord, help us to constantly be reminded by your presence and your power 
uh, through the things that surround us, just like Solomon was, Lord. Lord, I pray that we will uh, take Solomon's example, at least the first half of his life, of being focused not on our own kingdom and what we think needs to happen, but focused on you and what you want to happen, what you want us to do. Lord, I pray that we, even though we may feel unqualified, that we will understand that you are the one who qualifies us, that it's your grace and your love for us that qualifies us to share your love with the people around us. Give us the courage and the strength to do that, Lord. It's your time I pray. Amen. Let's uh, stand together. We're going to sing a a song of of invitation today. And my invitation to you is pretty simple. is just to think about um, what kingdom are you building? Are you building your own kingdom or are you building his kingdom? And um, are you worried about your quality of life and the quantity of the things that you're accumulating? Or are you more worried about doing the things that God has called you to do? But that starts, first of all, with surrender. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And surrender simply means saying, I don't want things to be my way. I want things to be your way. You'll surrender to something in this life. I don't know what it is. You'll surrender to something. My encouragement to you is surrender to God, to do things his way. If that's something that you need to do today, I want to challenge you. I want to invite you to do that, to simply say, I do want to follow God. It starts with that decision. So if you need to make that decision today, I invite you to do that.